welcome to Flash Forward. This is the fifth and final episode looking at all the stuff that inspired the Welcome to Vanguard Estates fictional series. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about nursing homes and why it is that while most people want to spend their final years at home or in a supportive community, that doesn't tend to happen. And then we're going to do a little bit of wrap up on this whole series and consider what we have learned. Oh, and by the way, I'm Rose and I'm your host. I say that on every episode, so I should say it here now. Before we go any further, I want to share something really cool, which is that a listener has actually created an interactive version of Welcome to Vanguard Estates with the audio all in one place. So if you like wanted to listen to the series but got frustrated by trying to find the various episodes or whatnot, I know it's like a little confusing where you have to like scroll through your podcasting app, et cetera, et cetera. Now you can play through the audio online. I am so thankful to Marcos for setting that up. I will put a link in the show notes and you can go to flashforwardpod.com slash Vanguard Interactive to see and hear it. Um, so again, thank you, Marcos, for making that so cool. Uh, I am like so stoked to have it now on the site. Okay, back to our regular programming. So let's start with the question that is the name of this episode. Where do you want to grow old? Most people share the same answer to that question. Surveys show that 77% of people over 50 say they want to remain in their homes. And that number has stayed consistent in polling for over a decade. But not all of those 77% of people will get their wish. 3.4 million people over the age of 65 currently live in their children's homes, and 2.4 million live in group settings like nursing homes. And this happens for a bunch of different reasons. For some people, the homes they currently live in would need to be changed in some way in order for it to be safe for them to stay. In one survey, about a third of all participants said that their homes would need to be modified somehow if they wanted to keep living in them. That includes things like there's no bedroom or bathroom on the first floor for them to use. Most people don't have the money to do that kind of major renovation to put a bedroom and bathroom on that first floor. And that's assuming that you own your house and can do those kinds of renovations. One think tank called the Urban Institute estimates that by 2040, the number of people renting their homes or apartments will surge to 12.9 million. And in particular, those are likely to be Black older adults. What that means is that a lot of people, whether they like it or not, will wind up in some kind of facility, likely a nursing home. And there is a reason that most of us don't want to end our lives in one of these places. We know nursing homes are unpleasant places to live. It's, it's, it's a punchline in The Simpsons that, that Grandpa Simpson's nursing home is like a sad, horrible place to be. That's Sarah Luderman, a reporter at The 19th who's covered nursing home conditions. There's just like this thing that we, we know about them, and yet we send, our, send people we love to them anyway. The quality of nursing homes varies wildly, but they're marked by some specific elements. And one of them is that you can't really leave just because you want to. Here's Dr. Alana Lee Glazer, the anthropology professor at St. John's University, who you heard last week. The facilities where I worked, you know, you couldn't get off the floor, so you need to pass, put a 
passcode in to access the elevator or the stairwells. And that's just such a like high level of containment. It always made me feel really uncomfortable and, and envisioning a future where I live in a setting like that, you know, and knowing that I like am unable to leave. Many nursing homes have dedicated dementia wards, also sometimes called memory care units, where they have extra security in place. And in sociology jargon, these places are considered total institutions. The total institution is uh, a concept that was proposed by the sociologist Irving Goffman. Um, and basically, it's the, the basic definition is it's a place where a lot of people are living in the same place and they work in the same place and they live in the same place. And there isn't really the separation between sort of like home and work and that we see in most places, they're the same sort of separation of spheres. And in the total institution, people don't have privacy. They don't have freedom of choice. They don't choose what they're going to do, what they're going to eat. Prisons are also total institutions. These are places where, when you live there, you no longer have the ability to decide for yourself what your day looks like or what you want to do. The disability activist Dave Hingsberger came up with what he calls the burrito test. That test goes like this. You wake up in the middle of the night and you are craving a microwave burrito. Can you get up and microwave one yourself? If the answer is no, you are not allowed to do that. It's a total institution. There's also like a concurrent concept called the right to eat too many donuts, which is like, you know, like people have a right to make bad decisions. Like if if I, as someone who's not living in an institution or in a group home or, you know, with a certain level of care, like if I decide to eat a bunch of, if I decide to skip work, eat a bunch of donuts and take a nap, like nobody's going to stop me. I might, you know, lose my job or or face, you know, get have a stomach ache, like, you know, regular consequences. but like. No one's going to stop me. In most nursing homes, that wouldn't be allowed. A nurse would stop you. And it doesn't have to just do with food. This is about your choices generally. You or I might be feeling like a little bleh one day and decide to just spend the day in bed. That is not a choice that folks who live in these places have. There's a really excellent older study and there's like this one um, passage that he writes about where someone wanted to stay in bed all day. They didn't want to have to get out of bed, but the long-term living facilities protocols insisted that every patient get out of bed and like move to a common room or whatever at a certain point in the day. And, you know, he kind of writes like along the lines of, you know, this person's human rights weren't being trampled by you know, not by their wishes to stay in bed, not being respected. And it always stuck with me that, you know, in fact, like, aren't they? You know, if, if what you want to do all day is lay around, um, it seems so unfair that because of, you know, various um, bureaucratic liabilities or bureaucratic values that you're not permitted to just make that decision for yourself um, in these, in certain settings, these uh, congregate care settings. Secure dementia units are a severe form of violation of rights of institutionalisation and worse, of segregation. That's Kate Swaffer again. Not only are folks with dementia segregated away, conditions in many nursing homes are often very bad. 
We talked last week about the shortage of caregivers and people willing to do these jobs for such low pay. And that is having a huge impact on the quality of care in these facilities. We're talking like like one person being responsible for toileting, feeding, changing, cleaning, giving medication to like 70 people. That's like not something that someone could do competently and also provide emotional support for those people. Like it's not it's not like a thing a human being can do. And so like when we have these like this understaffing, when we have these underpaid, undertrained, overworked staff doing all of this stuff, like it gets really ugly really quickly. During the COVID pandemic, nursing homes were hit really, really hard. Here is a statistic that I always find just shocking. According to the COVID tracking project, Deaths connected to long-term care facilities account for 35% of U.S. COVID-19 fatalities, even though less than 1% of the U.S. population lives in these places. And this continues to be an issue. In October of this year, AARP data showed that 32% of nursing home residents tested positive for COVID-19 that month. And it's not that COVID has suddenly made nursing homes unpleasant. For decades, folks living in these places have been routinely strapped down or drugged. In fact, in Australia, there is data to say that probably 600 people a year are dying from the overuse of antipsychotics in Australia. And there's been a number of research projects about reducing antipsychotics in nursing homes globally, and yet they are persistently prescribed to, to people with dementia. Part of thinking about care is, are medication interventions, in that case in particular, been disastrous? That's Dr. Tia Powell again, the psychiatrist and bioethicist at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. We've been using antipsychotic medications to treat agitation in nursing homes, and they're terrible. They cause delirium, they have terrible side effects. They cause sedation, so you fall, you break a hip, and then you're bedbound and game over. Um, They cause delirium, they do all kinds of things. They make a lot of other illnesses worse. There have been some attempts to make it harder to prescribe these things in nursing homes, but there is a long way to go. There's almost no regulation at all for the use of anti- Uh, psychotic medications in assisted living programs and in other places. And even in the acute care hospital and our big fancy medical research institutions, we still use this stuff and it's bad news. And people are finding workarounds. Like, oh, he has schizophrenia. That's why we're actually, it would be reportable in the New England Journal if you found a 90-year-old who was first diagnosed with schizophrenia. That's kind of not like how that works. It would be, whoa, that just doesn't happen. In other places, they've stopped using antipsychotics and started using other drugs. Professor Henry Bredati, who's one of the leaders in dementia in Australia, in his witness statement to the Royal Commission said that um, now some doctors are switching from antipsychotics as ways to sedate slash restrain and are starting to use high-dose antihistamines, which also have a highly sedative effect. Given all of this, it won't surprise you then that the outcomes for living in these places are not good. People who move into nursing homes tend to die sooner than those who get to age in place. 
Over 30% of residents who enter a nursing home facility die within the first year. Now, when you think about it, this is kind of weird. Most people don't want to live in these places. The conditions are bad. They are cesspools for disease, they are poorly regulated, and as we talked about last week, they're really expensive. So why do they exist? Why do we allow this to happen? It turns out actually there's a lot of suffering that people in our society are completely comfortable with living with. I am officially on the record as being opposed to nursing homes sort of on principle. I do not think that they should exist. Sarah agrees. We actually wrote very similar stories right around the same time in 2020, both arguing for the end of nursing homes. And one of the things that you hear when you talk about this or write about this is that there is simply no other way for us to handle the aging population. There's just like no other solution. What else are we supposed to do? Nursing homes have been around forever for a reason. The thing is, they have not been around forever. It's actually really new. That was the thing that shocked me when I was doing research for this piece. Before nursing homes, there were things like rest homes, which were small facilities that housed 30 to 50 people at a time. Those were generally run by philanthropists, and they were for folks who had really nobody else to turn to. Historically, people have done care at home. Um, it's mostly been family care. Those who didn't have that would go to almshouses or poorhouses, which were generally awful. People were often forced to work for scraps. On, on Blackwell's Island, which is now called Roosevelt Island in New York City, there were hundreds of beds that were squeezed together so tightly that residents had difficulty getting in and out of them. During the Great Depression, the number of poor people famously skyrocketed, and these places could no longer keep up. And for a long time, the U.S. government was not sure what to do. It wasn't until the 1950s that the large institutional spaces we know of today became common thanks to a new law in the U.S. called the Hill-Burton Act, which allowed public money to be used to build nursing homes. Between 1960 and 1965, federal spending on nursing homes went up from $47 million to $449 million a year. So it's like... Um, Sorry, if this is a podcast, you can't see my arm going up with the, the hand motion. Um, and then Medicaid came to be, which is like the, the biggest funder of long-term care in the United States in 1965. And that put even more money into the nursing home system. So the nursing home, nursing home capacity in the U.S. basically more than doubled um, in the decade between, 19, yeah, between 1963 and 1973. So there was all of this money going into these new institutions, but very little oversight. There weren't a ton of requirements about uh, things like building codes, uh, whether a nurse was available, you know, whether narcotics were in locked cabinets, um, whether the food was food. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, like just really... There was one account that I read that like talked about like green meat with maggots in the kitchen. It was just like really gross stuff. Eventually, the U.S. passed some basic rules about what constituted a skilled nursing facility to address these glaring errors. But there are still big problems with oversight. And a lot of the current oversight relies on nursing homes to accurately self-report their conditions. Today, the nursing home industry in the U.S. is huge. 
According to the CDC, there were 15,600 facilities in 2016, and almost 70% of them were for-profit. A report by Grandview Research found that the long-term care market is set to be worth $1.7 trillion by 2030. In the United States, nursing home lobbyists are powerful and have already gotten to work seeking immunity from COVID-19-related lawsuits and asking for billions in federal relief funding and resisting additional oversights and regulations that might be imposed upon them. Now, the point that Sarah and I are making here, the argument that nursing homes are fairly recent and should probably not exist, it is not an argument to go back to free domestic labor. I think a lot of people misunderstand my argument and think that what I'm arguing is that actually like it was totally better when unpaid family caregivers, mostly almost entirely women, basically didn't have lives and spent all of their time caring for people. Like that's no, that's 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 bad, obviously. But it's not like those are her only two options, right? Either women have to give up their jobs and do all this care work for free, or we have these terribly run and poorly regulated nursing homes where people suffer and die. We actually do have other choices. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what those choices are. This episode of Flash Forward is sponsored by Volante Design. If you are looking for gear that makes you feel just as badass in real life as you do when you get a triple S combo kill in a game, look no further than Volante Design. Okay, listen, I'll be honest that I don't know what that means, but I suspect that some of you do. And if you are a person that does know what a triple S combo kill is, Volante Designs makes really rad jackets that can make you legit look like your favorite characters from Assassin's Creed, Devil May Cry, and Star Trek, as well as plenty of other original collections like their cyberpunk and modern ninja line. Volante Design jackets are ethically sourced and manufactured, they're made for quality, and they will last you for years to come. Just go to volantedesign.us, that's V-O-L-A-N-T-E design.us, and use the code FLASHFORWARD for 10% off your entire order. That's FLASHFORWARD, all one word, for 10% off your entire order. Volante Design. Stay badass. Okay, so I have said already multiple times now that I think nursing homes as an institution, as a place, are something that we should consider abandoning. But even within the construct of nursing homes, there are much better models than the standard institution. And one of these examples can be found in the Netherlands. So you must realize that the vision on normal life for people living with dementia is already a 30-year-old innovation. This is Jeanette Spearing, one of the founders of a community in the Netherlands called The Hoge Wijk. Yes, and um, it's very difficult from people from abroad to pronounce the G, which is very prominent in the Dutch language. But that's also why we were dubbed uh, Dementia Village, because people can't pronounce the Hoogweg. The Hoogweg. I'm going to try my very best to say this correctly on the episode. Now, a dementia village is a different model for where people might live when they have dementia. Jeanette actually used to work at a more traditional nursing home back in the 1990s. But she was looking around and hearing from patients and families that things weren't that good. People were really dissatisfied about um, topics like um, food or how they were being treated by staff. Um, the, The lack of respect or dignity. 
1993, they decided to try and retrofit a nursing home to be more like a set of apartments. And I always compare it with, and I don't want to offend some anyone, but I compare it with an East German concrete block uh, to give you any idea uh, of how awful it was on the outside. But on the inside, it, um, once we transformed it, we transformed big wards into uh, living rooms. Uh, we put kitchens in it. Uh, we put a washing machine and a dryer onto every ward. Well, we created homes. And Jeanette says they immediately saw results. People were happier and healthier. And from there, Jeanette and the team decided to try and really go all in on this idea. So in 2008, they built the Hochweg. Well, you must imagine it's, an, it's an, um, uh, a normal Dutch neighborhood. It's a little bit urban because we are in a rather urban environment. Not a big city, but a little bit urban. And um, there are 27 houses in the neighborhood. And in every house, seven people uh, form a household. They live together. Um, if you talk about a household, that means that every meal is cooked in that household. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So every evening, 27 different menus are on. These houses look just like regular Dutch houses in a regular Dutch neighborhood. Each home has seven bedrooms, a kitchen, a living room, all normal stuff. And it's all accessible to everybody all the time. Residents can use that kitchen, they can open the fridge, they can take something out. They, If they are still able, they can make their own sandwich, so nothing is locked. And different homes in the neighborhood are actually decorated differently, depending on who lives there. Remember, there are seven people per house. And I asked Jeanette, like, how do you decide who lives together? Good question, because, well, living together with someone isn't that easy always. <laughs> And how do you do that with complete strangers as well? The answer lies in something they call lifestyles. Nowadays, we have four lifestyles in the Hoogweg. And if you live in a certain lifestyle, that means that everything that is in that household, the interior, but also the meals, the music, uh, the newspaper, which is on the table, everything is according to that lifestyle. Um, so these four lifestyles, the urban, the formal, the cosmopolitan, and the traditional lifestyles, they help um, people feel better in their own houses, which they share with six others. So in the urban and traditional lifestyle homes, people are more likely to want to drink beer or Geneva, a traditional Dutch drink. And so that stays stocked in the kitchen. In the cosmopolitan and formal lifestyle homes, they tend to like to have wine with their meals. Also, the interior, you, you see the cosmopolitan lifestyle is much more uh, outspoken in colors, for example, where the traditional lifestyle interior colors are much more mute and beige, uh, not that outspoken. And if you look at the interior of the formal lifestyle, you see the chandeliers, but well, the chandeliers, which fit a, a formal lifestyle, but in the urban lifestyle, we also have chandeliers, but they look completely different. Um, and we have wallpaper with big flowers on it, for example, uh, whereas 
in the formal lifestyle, we have very classic wallpaper. Residents also have access to the whole neighborhood. If you step out your front door, you will be on, um, uh, well, you will be outdoors, uh, which sounds normal, but for people living with dementia who are sadly most of the time uh, a locked in facility and can't go outside by themselves, this is, for us, it's normal, but it's a rare feature that if you step out your front door unaccompanied by a nurse or a carer, because freedom is one of the other assets of the village. Uh, if you step out your front door, you can wander on the streets, um, through the parks, um, you can cross the big square, or you can go to the theater square, or uh, you can visit the supermarket. Uh, there is a restaurant where you can go to. Uh, there is a theater where um, performances are held. In total, the Hochweg houses 188 residents. And behind the scenes, there is a whole team of people helping to make this possible. Each home has a lead caregiver and a supporter. Then there are the employees. There are employees of the grocery store, the restaurant, doctors, occupational therapists, the whole shebang. So it's, it's, a, whole, um, it's a whole organization where everyone is on our payroll except the hairdresser. But uh, she works already that long in the Hochweg, so she's one of us. The Hochweg is specifically for people with late-stage dementia, and so residents don't tend to stay all that long. The average time someone lives in the village is about two to two and a half years. But while they do live there, Jeanette says that their lives are much better often than they were even before they arrived, and certainly better than they would be in a traditional nursing home. I think the biggest uh, measure for success is what other people, other care providers say when they come and visit us. And that is that they do not believe that the people who live in the Hogeweg are the same residents, the same people with a diagnosed with severe dementia, uh, that these people are the same um, uh, uh, residents as they have in their facilities, their traditional care facilities where people are drugged, where people are confined to a certain place in the institute, where people can't go out their own houses and have freedom to walk around and to, to engage and to socialize. Um, so sometimes we have to convince uh, these persons that those people living in the Hoogwijk are really the same residents, really in that severe or that last stage of dementia, but that creating different environments, having a different philosophy, offering choice and offering freedom uh, makes such a huge, huge difference. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, especially if you're Americans. You're probably thinking, wow, Rose, this sounds great. It also sounds really freaking expensive. Well, my poor, poor American listeners. Buckle up. If you are diagnosed with dementia uh, by a special committee, uh, which functions all over the Netherlands, uh, and you, you get that permission to move into a nursing home, the state, the government will pay everything. So actually everyone in the Netherlands can afford this type of care. Okay, those of us in the United States can just take like a short moment to weep at how nice that sounds. 
But there is also another metric for how expensive this model might be, which is how much the Hochweg gets from the government to operate. The budget that we get from the government, that the Hochweg gets from the government, is the same budget as every other nursing home in the Netherlands. So we do not get extra budget because we have created this nursing home. Now, this is still a nursing home. It still segregates folks with dementia away in their own little area. I mean, it's definitely better, um, but also the bar's in hell. You know, like I mean, being nicer than a nursing home is than a traditional nursing home is like, you know, it's a very low standard to meet. So I, I'm like, like they have like a restaurant that people go to that like people from the community go to, but that's not really, it's not community integration. If people can like visit, people can visit nursing homes too. You know, like it's, it's, it's the people that living in the village are still separated from society. This is something that Kate mentioned earlier and something that she thinks is wrong. Kate thinks that we should have integrated living facilities for people with all kinds of disabilities and needs. Why haven't we found ways to allow people with dementia who are neurodiverse and who may have different needs and need cognitive ramps? They may not need wheelchair ramps, but we need cognitive ramps. Why aren't we providing communities that enable people to live more independently for longer? And I, I, I understand completely from my own professional background that there's likely going to be a time when I will need to be in some sort of assisted living. That would be especially so if I lived on my own. But, I, you know, I think that we need much, much smaller group housing models that aren't exclusively for people with dementia. And I asked Jeanette about this, and her answer kind of surprised me. They are completely right, because we are also convinced that people should stay part of society, even uh, when they are diagnosed with dementia, even when the, di- when the dementia progresses. But sadly enough, uh, society isn't ready yet for people living with severe dementia because they do not understand them. They fear people living with dementia. So it is not that institutions uh, should change the foremost by by desegregation. It is society which has to step up to embrace people living with dementia or whoever is living with a disability, by the way, um, so that they can enable people to stay part of society so that we as institutions do not have to segregate them. So her answer kind of brings up a really interesting question. It's like a little bit of a chicken and egg quandary. Whose responsibility is it to change the way that we think about aging? Right now, we have sort of a self-reinforcing system. We segregate folks with dementia because culturally people are anxious about having them integrated into society. And then by segregating them, we reinforce that stigma. But how can you push back against that if you don't integrate folks back into the world? And as care providers, is it ethical to force people to live in situations where maybe they are unwelcome or treated poorly? I understand, like, there's a lot of issues when you're dealing with, you know, people with dementia, behavioral issues, safety issues. Like, you know, people might not behave appropriately. They might shout. They might curse. They might take take all their clothes off. Like, those are all things people do. Um, but I I think that really like, instead of building a special separate 
place for those people, what we really need to do as a society is get comfortable with that. Like just get comfortable with having people with disabilities and like dementia because it's a disability around to not look away, to not isolate people and their caregivers when they behave in ways that are odd or disruptive. You and I probably can't make a huge difference in the way that the nursing home industry is run, but we can actually impact this. We can think about our assumptions and demands and the way we react when someone behaves in a way that we might not expect. I want to live in a society where people with disabilities and seniors and and kids too, like families, all exist in public and it's normal. Like if you're somewhere and a baby starts crying, nobody's like, well, you need to go home. You know, like where it's it's like where, you know, caregivers can can go out and have lives and still do what they need to do where, you know, if someone's talking to themselves in public, it's not a big deal. Um, If someone, you know, if, if someone with dementia or an intellectual disability is, is being disruptive, like people just kind of take it in stride. Now we have talked a lot about nursing homes, the bad ones and the better ones, but there is in fact another way for care to happen. Another place, in fact. And that is in people's homes. The thing about ending nursing homes is we already have a home care system in the United States, at least. Like we have we have long-term services and supports for people at home that are that are funded by the government and that involve paid workers going to people's homes and caring for them. The the problem with it is that it is incredibly underfunded. States are not required to pay for at-home care for anybody. If a state isn't required to pay for something, they're generally not going to. So you end up with, with these huge waiting lists to get services and supports at home. In some cases, at-home care can actually be far more affordable. And again, this is what most people want. I just wrote about the state of Georgia has 7,000 people, over 7,000 people on their waiting list. And what it comes down to is just that, like, there isn't the political will to pay for it. It is completely possible to deliver care at home for people. We just need to put the money in. Of course, the U.S.'s economic inequities and terrible healthcare system have made dying at home, well, challenging, too. The New Yorker just published an investigative report about the ways in which the at-home hospice industry has become a $22 billion industry, rife with exploitation. But done well, with care and dignity in mind rather than dollar bills, at-home care is almost always better than moving someone into a total institution. This is a situation in which it's very clear that what we are currently doing could be much better. In the short run, we could have nursing homes that are designed and run like these dementia villages that make people happier and healthier. In the longer run, we could reframe our ideas of care and the way we spend money to provide people with the kinds of experiences they actually want. And yet... We don't make those changes. We don't do those things. The Hochweg has been around for over 10 years, and it's still treated like some kind of wild experiment, some newfangled thing. 
What people want is possible and doable if funding priorities change. So why are we stuck with the worst possible options? The answer is both complicated and also kind of not. It comes down to two main things, capitalism and ableism. Right now, there are lots of people making lots of money off of the way the system currently operates. Our economic system prioritizes profit over all else. And because older folks in general don't have a ton of political power or organizing capacity, it's hard to push back on that. On top of that, you have a culture that is extremely willing to ignore, ostracize, and discriminate against disabled folks. We see this currently with the pandemic, right? So many people seem not only willing to accept, but gleeful at the prospect that the virus might eliminate disabled folks at a higher rate. And a lot of people don't think of older folks as disabled. Even older adults themselves often resist this label. But it's worth considering them in the same breath. And there's this older disability rights activist who, uh, he's an older adult now, and um, his name's Kelly Buckland. And he uh, had this quote that I think about all the time, which is that nobody lives in a nursing home because they're old. They, they go to the nursing home because they have a disability. Like you end up in the nursing home because you need a certain level of care. It's not like you turn 80 and like automatically they admit you. And one exciting thing that we're seeing recently are some real alliances between aging activists, disability activists, and care workers. I think if you look at the way that organizations like the American Association of People with Disabilities, how, uh, how they've sort of started to like work with SEIU and the labor movement, I think that is in no small part because a lot of these bigger disability rights organizations are now led by women who understand that, you know, care work is work. And, and I think that's really that's that's been a really interesting development in the past decade and one I've been really excited to cover as a journalist. This series has been about a lot of things. Family, care, aging, dementia, technology, culture, money. And I was thinking a little bit about why I was drawn to this topic initially. I have not ever cared for anybody personally with dementia. And it's something that, frankly, I don't think about in my day-to-day -day life all that often. But I think that at the same time, it hits on so many of the topics that we talk about on Flash Forward all the time. Things like surveillance and ethics and policy and neuroscience. And it does so while looking at a population that is largely left out of futurism. When you see images of the future, you rarely see older folks. You almost never see people using wheelchairs or canes. You don't even see a lot of wrinkles amidst all the shiny chrome and sleek new devices. Aging is left out of futurism unless it is being conquered. But of course, we will continue to get older in the future. That is how time and biology works. Simply ignoring an entire group of people because they are inconvenient to the storyline is not only unrealistic, it's also problematic. Not everybody gets to grow old, unfortunately. But we should all think about what we want for our lives and for our friends and family if we get that lucky. And I hope that Welcome to Vanguard Estates and this little series of explainer episodes helped you think through some of those choices and ideas so you can work towards a better future.
Flash Forward is hosted by me, Rose Evelyn, and produced by Ozzy Linas Goodman. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Maddie Lubchansky. This is the last episode in our Welcome to Vanguard Estates series. Next, we are taking a little break. And then in December, Flash Forward is going to release its final three episodes ever. That's right, ever. The show is ending for good at the end of this year. If you're a patron, you have heard all about these plans. I have, in fact, mentioned them in the credits of other episodes. Um, The show's Patreon will close up shop on December 31st. But if you want to keep supporting me, Rose, as I go off and do my next things, you can find out more about how to do that at flashforwardpod.com. There is a blog post up now with all of that information. I hope you enjoyed the series, and I really hope you enjoy our finale. See you in a couple weeks.